My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I am joined by Ed West. Ed West is a British author, a journalist and blogger, uh, the owner-operator of a substack called The Wrong Side of History, and the author of many, many books, among them The Diversity Illusion uh, and Small Men on the Wrong Side of History. Um, welcome, Ed. Thanks. Pleasure. Uh, it's lovely to have you here. Um, I also, in my research um, on your on your past uh, deeds and, and and writing. You've written many books, but I feel like this. I could not mention this because, similarly to me, you've had kind of a, a previous career in writing. Um, and one of your books is called How to Pull Women: The Science yeah. of Seduction. I had to bring this yeah, up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I've had a very, very shady life. Now, I <laughs> explain uh, yourself. Back in the noughties, when I first went into journalism, and I was kind of drifting into a. Uh, I don't know what kind of career. Um, I worked at men's magazines, which was kind of funny. It was a very big phenomenon in the, in the late 90s and um, noughties. And that it sort of started in England and then it sort of, they went to America. But they were very, by, by today's standards, they were incredibly racy. I mean, you know, basically, and they became more and more racy and basically became pornographic. Um, and that looking back, it's kind of shocking. I mean, they're sort of more they would be more shocking to today's morality than like 1950s, you know, anything from the 50s. It's, it's strange. Um, but yeah, I, at the time I wrote some sort of like, you know, small toilet books and one of them, I mean, it's ironic. I mean, it's, I also wrote a book about grooming, like, and I'm the most unkempt person in the magical <laughs> season. Um, so those are, yeah, so. I thought, I thought that was interesting uh, just because I feel like I have a kind of a similar, you know, past, I mean, not necessarily, you know, writing about, pickup but i i used to be a columnist for vice uh, and used to do essentially what you know made to order stuff like i for example i had one like why uh why that the small town i was from is a terrible place or something like that and i just had to trash my hometown which now looking in retrospect is just like oh lord uh i did i did a pretty good job of it you know it it um it had a lot of uh, viewer viewers but you know a lot a lot sorry uh, I think Vice was was uh, I don't even I wouldn't say descended from the the men's magazine thing, but it was quite similar in terms like Loaded, which was the first the men's magazines here. So there was that kind of thing. So a lot of a lot of journalists then start in those kind of things um, with the aim of getting into more substantial stuff. By the way, it wasn't like a pickup artist book. By the way, I mean I've read the game and I thought it was a very interesting book, although it gets very depressing and sinister towards the end. Um, it was supposed to be just like, a, you know, a comedy guide, like a funny, light-hearted. I mean, you know, I'm the absolute worst person to write it, but there you go. I mean, yeah, and now here I am as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're obviously a, a, a more serious, literally a scholar at this point, uh, but, you know, everyone kind of starts at, at one point. I just found it really interesting because, like you say, you know, there's some certain things that, you know, like I, 
I didn't study to be a journalist and I kind of wanted to get into journalism. And what I did is write, you know, a Vice stylisticle and send it into Vice. And the Vice were like, this is kind of shitty. If you correct it in these ways, we're going to, you know, pay you, I don't know, <laughs> the equivalent of $10, $10 to write articles for us. So yeah, That's that was... Great. I mean, that, and, that, and at the time that feels like, wow, amazing. It was so cool because it was the only publication that was a little bit non not communist <laughs> we, we used to describe everything that was around us when we were growing up like teenagers or your early 20s um everything that kind of had this heavy old-timey feel as communist and vice was so stridently not communist that it was the best place to work for and i knew this one guy who worked for vice and he was seen as like this you know this floating god entity and you know it's like whenever he showed up at a party it was like it's the vice guy maybe he's gonna write about us so i thought <laughs> hmm if this dude can be the vice guy, maybe I can be the vice woman. So I, uh, I tried my, my hand at it. But it, it, was a, it was a pretty crazy time at that point. And another um, relic from that time, which I think a lot of people maybe, you know, look back on with, a, you know, cringe and, and it, it, you know, maybe not regret, but like, you know, it's just a, a product of the time is a confessional essay. I don't know if you know that, like a lot of women yeah. did that, like Exo Jane style confessional essay, like pages upon pages of, I don't know. I, I felt so strong, so strange when his hand was on my shoulder. And, you know, I feel like just like that, that confessional nature of the early internet uh, and just putting it all out there and, um, you know, kind of waiting for a, a reaction. That was, just, it was just like a, you know, there was a time and place for that stuff. And I feel like. It's very exploitative. I, I read there was, Sarah Dyson wrote a really interesting piece about it once. I think it was for Unheard. And it was, she was going through all the, the most famous ones. And whenever these women, and it's always women who'd write them, and their entire life be detonated. That'd be completely their their whole Google search was completely ruined by this. They'd have hundreds of people calling them all sorts of things, and it admits to being a completely pathetic person. Um, and they'd get they'd get paid like seventy dollars. Oh god, this is so this is so terrible. This is so exploitative. It's yeah. just basically encouraging um, desperate people trying to get into the media to you know humiliate. Yeah. It was an easy way to get, you know, 15 minutes of fame. And for like a hot minute at that point, it was really interesting. Like people at the parties would say, oh, you know, I, I understand how you felt when you were in that awkward sexual encounter with that dude and whatever. So you would kind of get that that feedback. But uh, outside of those circles, you yeah, you'd essentially detonate your yeah, <laughs> your your reputation for for nothing. Um, yeah. So to, to move beyond the uh sordid past of internet uh, history. Um, your latest book, uh, Small Men on the Wrong Side of History, um, which uh, is, a, is a very good title, to be honest. Like, I, I remember that. That's one thing I remembered about you and your person. I just, just, there's something about this whole concept of the, of the wrong side of history that's, that's great. And I love that you also named your subsect that, um, is, is about the failures of um, post-war British conservatism. And you've... Uh, You've also had some some things to say about what's happened recently. I mean, the, the whole UK is ablaze now in more ways than one about um, about Boris Johnson leaving office and um, his potential successors. I mean, how how does the situation on the ground feel as someone who's essentially been diagnosing these problems for for a while? I mean, what's what's your feeling as a as one of the the, the major diagnosticians of, of conservative failure? I don't know. I'm always such a voice of doom and, and bleakness. Um, <laughs> basically, there's there, you know there's about eight or nine serious candidates now. Um, Rishi, the Chancellor. I suppose he's probably a favourite. I'm not. 
I don't think he's like a very good political operator. He had this thing where he was, he's this kind of non-dom status thing with his wife, who's a fantastically wealthy Indian woman. And there was a sort of feeling that they basically had to declare that, that the UK would not be their primary residence in the next five years. The rules are basically to sort of minimise your tax. You're sort of stating, and there's obviously a good reason for the non-dom thing. You want to attract the kind of, you know, the very leads of the world. But it was basically a statement of, you know, our, our future isn't in the UK. We're going to move to Malibu along with all the other sort of rest of the sort of, you know, moving global leads. And you think, like, if you're going to be chancellor and presumably you want to be prime minister, you should have at least some investment in the country, or at least pretend. Um, and that that suggests someone who's not very not very good political operator. I mean, it's easy to say that because he's, like, fantastically rich. So he's inevitably going to uh, sort of attract a certain amount of resentment. And he's younger than me as well, which makes it bad. Um, so he's a front runner. Liz Truss is also she's she's like a liberal, but like not in a bad way. She's she's quite anti-progressive, but she's very much. So she made this quote about you know the young generation of British people were sort of uber riding freedom fighters, which really grated kind of conservatives at our end at the sort of more and the more post-liberal kind because that's kind of it was kind of like this is everything we hate about what's happening. Uh, and also, I don't really think young people particularly want freedom that much. Um, but then there are the other candidates, you know, like Penny Morden, who is quoted to a book when it mentions that, you know, the, how terrible white privilege is. And you just think, why are you in the Conservative Party if you actually, you know, if you use that, that's kind of phrase is a bit of a, and Tom Tugendhat is also, a lot of Conservatives don't like him because he, he basically uh, denounced Roger Scruton when there was this sort of new statesman interview and he was stitched up. Um, so, I mean, I guess the, the bright young hope is Kemi Badenoch, who's just sort of announced things. The thing is, she hasn't got much experience. She's only, she's young again. She's had about, you know, the, the comparison, she's had about as much experience as David Cameron had when he took over the party, and he didn't turn out to be very good, I don't think, in my opinion. So, I don't know. I mean, Boris felt like it was just basically like a wasted opportunity. He had this enormous majority. He could have done anything he liked. And it was just—I mean, I know it's COVID, but it was all yeah. sort of—it was, it was all sort of drama, wasted on drama. Yeah. Distractness. Yeah, it's a. It seemed like Boris always had very good intentions, and he made them public, <laughs> and then he backed out seconds before it was uh, it was crunch time, which is very interesting because he, you know, he he was supposed to be kind of our guy in a way he's very like classically trained individual yeah. you know he's definitely learned uh, learned lessons from history um but I, I i don't also understand exactly what the what the mechanisms are around someone like the prime minister and exactly how much leeway uh, and executive power he actually has yeah they have um, quite a lot of, i mean the british prime minister has a lot of power he, he could have i mean for example there's like the main bugbear for people like me on the incest stuff like the equality act which the labor installed um really weeks before they left power in 2010 and that states shores up whenever there's always complaints about oh you know wokeness wokeness and education wokeness and hr um whatever wokeness come and we can talk about what that means but that's in, i mean that's enshrined in british law that's why it's there i mean if you could get rid of some of it's cultural but some a huge amount you could just get rid of the law we don't need it uh, we don't need these kind of like targets we don't need um equality of outcomes to do a thing and then there is stuff um, like the Communications Act, another Labour thing. You know, lots of in Britain we have lots of cases of people 
Recently, a man was jailed for four months for making jokes on WhatsApp about George Floyd. I mean, I don't know how offensive the jokes were. Maybe they were disgusting. I don't know. But I mean, newspapers don't even print what the joke is now. So a uh, man shouldn't be going to jail for that. It's ridiculous. People shouldn't be having the police coming around um, and interviewing them because of their views on, on the trans issue, which happens a lot in Britain. Um, and these are things the government could have just changed. They could have just said, right, we're, we're changing the law now. And Boris had this huge majority, um, but he just had, an, you know, I say this to someone in the media, he had a very, very typically journalistic, chaotic life. You know, he's th three times married. When he came prime minister, he was homeless. He was living at his girlfriend's place in South London, you know, where they famously had a row. Uh, it was just so okay. I mean, I, I mean, Dominic Cummings, who is sort of, you know, the Thomas Cromwell figure to carry Anne Boleyn, you know, these figures within the court. I don't know how much everyone will know about that historical analogy there, but you know, this kind of chaotic court with a middle-aged man who takes an interest in young women and uh, and that leads to the court kind of um, becoming more and more chaotic. I mean, he alleged that Boris was too busy to attend these COBRA meetings when, when COVID arrived. COBRA is the sort of national security meetings because he was writing this biography of Shakespeare, which he had to pay, which he had to write to pay for his second divorce. And you just think like, how is that possible? <laughs> Like, how can you be such a chaotic person? Um, and then I think, you know, the most, to me, the most telling story of his time was, you know, he did the dog airlift of Kabul, which was like such a British story. You know, we are withdrawing from Afghanistan and the British Prime Minister orders. I suspect that the behest of his wife, who's a big animal lover, as, you know, British people tend to be, that these dogs in Kabul, which were part of this dog sanctuary, had to be airlifted out of the country, which is just so insane. Such a such a strange use of resources for British personnel. I just it for me it kind of epitomized the stupidity and the shallowness of the whole thing. And so you know he said three years, okay, he had COVID, the whole thing, blah blah. But what what have they got to show to it? I mean, there's nothing really. There's nothing really you would know. There's nothing to suggest that we've had a Tory-led government for twelve years. In the same way that Blair had thirteen years, Blair and Brown, New Labour had thirteen years in power, and they transformed the country. Margaret Thatcher. 11 years, um, she completely transformed the country. Huge, huge differences after, whether you like that or not. She had a vision of what the country should change to. And said, well, the current government have just, have just basically done nothing in that sense. One or two things is tinkering around, but. Yeah, do you think that that's partly because they, at, at heart uh, and at bottom, they essentially agree with the the vision of the world that, that the left has? Absolutely, uh, absolutely. I mean, Boris Johnson is very much of that social kind of social milieu. I mean, you know, he's, he's, I always think it's telling that, his, for example, his sister-in-law is a, is a campaigning garden journalist, a very, very successful, you know, nothing wrong with it. She's a very successful um, journalist who exposed the, the Windrush scandal, which was the previous government. His father was a Remainer activist campaigner. His sister is a Remain, you know, a Tory Remainer. You know, that's fine, the Brexit debate. I'm not particularly partisan on that. Um, but he is from that kind of socially liberal. He he, he lived in he lived in, in North London when he was mayor, which you know, those outside Tories tended to historically live in West London and liberals and progressives in North London. He is part. He's very much part of that. He you know, they think is they would like, they agree with the progressive um, kind of agenda. They just want to slightly slow it down, maybe. But you know, and, and as a classic example, Brexit was Brexit was undoubtedly it was a vote in immigration. Like they, there's no, you can look at what people said, what was reasonable. It was immigration. It was people saying, 
this was their first chance to, to vote on that issue ever because there was no real way of opposing it because the Tories did nothing and there was no and the, the electoral system means it's just very hard to and even the way it was phrased by the Leave campaign they knew it was about immigration that you know sovereignty I meant the right to control the borders and now we have record immigration as a result I mean it's so farcically stupid I don't even know uh, like you can as a historian like in the future you know how would they how do you even analyze the motives of people I mean, often when you think about history you think why do people do something which is obviously so counter to their interests? And it's happening in, in our time. We can see it. Yeah, I mean, the, the people who are doing it and the people also in, in Tory leadership are essentially leveraging populist energies uh, for power, but then they essentially still as- ascribe to the same elite creed, you know, kind of exactly. neoliberalism. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's undoubtedly that that way. Um, I, I, didn't, I mean, I didn't know what... I mean, I would, I would like to see, because I don't see conservatives sort of make out this is actually what we philosophically believe about the world. You know, this is like 10, 12 points. Um, we believe these things are good. Um, this is true, and blah, blah. And we're going to work as a sort of standpoint from that. I mean, to, often, like, obviously, some conservative candidates um, have said, oh, we're going to stop this woke nonsense or something. It's always phrased in this kind of like tabloid these way. I don't know. What do they mean by that? I mean, I don't know. What do they mean by wokeness? I don't know. Uh, I think it's, it's mainly focused on the sort of fripperies and stuff like statues, um, maybe a few pride flags, but they don't really know. I mean, they don't really have an idea of what that really means or what kind of they, they can offer. I mean, I fundamentally believe that the kind of progressive, the progressive vision of the world uh, is just wrong. I mean, it's, it's based on fundamentally untrue things about human nature and it's based on a completely utopian vision of the world. And it places too much emphasis on um, the unusual rather than the average. And it's it's very much directed by people, some of whom have quite clear mental health problems. I mean, on social media, for example. I, I know we should like counter that. We should say this is not, this is this stuff isn't true. It's not like we want to slow this down and have it a bit later. It's just not true. We, we have a different vision of the world. You know, we want, want something else. Um, and I don't think. Sorry, I'm starting to rant now, and I just—I'm just going to turn to my parents. You know, this is everyone. This happens to everyone. Yeah, I mean, this happens to fewer and fewer people. I think, I think you actually—I don't know if it was you or someone. Someone written or has written an article recently just saying that this this conversion to conservative that was just typical for a very long time—it's just not not happening for for yeah. kind of more younger generations like millennials and things like and that. That's so, what, I mean, that's the whole thing of the thesis of the book, basically, um, that if from around the mid 1970s, around then or the early 80s, people born around that point onwards, there's just that doesn't happen. Most people between the age of 30 and 40 would become conservative. Not most people, but a huge number. And that was tied into certain kind of stages in life. I mean, a big factor is basically, you know, the number of children people having. If people have children, they're much more likely to become conservative. Um, there's loads of studies on that. Uh, there's been a huge drop in the number of people um, starting families. Part of it is due to the housing situation, which is kind of basically the chief problem in Britain now. I mean, I, I know the housing expense everywhere in London. It's just, it's completely, it's been insane for years. Um, and it's gone from being kind of mildly amusing, insane, just to just really deeply depressing. It's, no, it's impossible to um, anyone really to get on the, the property ladder. 
So people don't have houses, they can't afford a sort of longer expansion of higher education also kind of allows progressive ideas to be spread amongst much wider section of the population. It, even if they're not, I mean, I'm not even sure it doesn't, you don't even need like active, like communist lecturers, like indoctrinating people. I'm not sure that actually works with that. I just think it's more like the, the cultural setting of university just makes, basically makes progressivism the kind of norm. Um, so there's a kind of, you know, range of fact. I mean, obviously religion, a massive point. So religious decline. And even if people aren't religious, if the kind of vibe around them, the, the culture around them is vaguely still Christian, then that will kind of implant Christian, I sort of conservative norms around them in the way it's hard to explain. And once that sort of disappears, then progressivism basically becomes the substitute religion uh, which is seen in America. I mean, the drop-off in religious attendance in America is, must be the most significant kind of social trend of the 21st century so far. It's been huge. And it's not a coincidence that as Americans have stopped going to church, their politics has gone completely mental um, in the last 20 years. It's just become so much more extreme. I mean, I would say it's more extreme on the left in the sense that, you know, um, the Republican Party has lots of really, really crazed people and to my decadent European is really some crazy ideas, but they just don't have the influence on Europe that Democrats do. So, you know, there tends to be, you know, things like gun control and the climate and stuff. Um, even, you know, since the abortionist to some extent. Um, but they, you know, they just have no impact on Europe. While the crazy wing of the Democrats, what they say will be, you know, copied by British politicians in like a year's time, even if it's completely irrelevant to Britain. Yeah, I think there's a huge kind of kind of ingredient in this, I feel like, is, is technology and kind of media propagated by different technologies. Because, I mean, just the, the vision of, of what life should be like and what to strive towards and what to avoid, is essentially, even for people like me, been set by what we've seen in media, which has mostly been created in, in Hollywood or... In somewhere in the West by some person who's very probably liberal and wants to impart these ideas. Yeah. Like you know, some dysfunctional person. And and as you go out and meet them, they're very unhappy, dysfunctional people. You'd never seek life advice from them in any other way. I mean, you're a bit younger than me, uh, I think. Pretty sure you are. A uh, fair bit. Um, but looking back on the kind of, I don't know, the ideas that I sort of grew up with that were in the ether when I was growing up are all were all completely were just all wrong. You know, this kind of I just think about the, the kind of the anti-common sense we grew up with. Oh, you know, bullies are just sort of vulnerable people who who bully because they feel, you know, because they feel afraid of no, they're not. They're bully because they're, they're strong and they enjoy it. I mean, it's like all these kind of silly memes in the 80s that, that basically starts in the 60s because there's a sort of cutoff from kind of deeper wisdom and older common sense. I, I think that that's, those ideas have now kind of, you know, spread through universities towards, you know, 50% population and then they become the norm. So people have a completely, uh, I don't know, an unrealistic view of the world, unrealistic view of human nature, which has just become, you know, the standard, the standard, kind of the, the model of liberation. We're not, we're not actually biological creatures and, and act, act in obvious and predictable ways. Exactly. And that all of life's tragedies, uh, you know, derive from from a lack of freedom or that, you know, there's someone's boot on your neck and that's why right. you're depressed or, you know, like the most mentally ill people in this in this world have the most 
kind of complicated uh, ideas of, of who's oppressing whom and, you know, how they're right. affected by all of this stuff. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very strange thing. And like you said, this also ties into, um, you know, the decline in population is something that you've written about as well. Um, and there's a kind of a quote from, from one of your pieces on this, um, and it references someone else's work. It's, I'm, I'm just going to quote it here, but I think it's a really nice kind of, um, summary of of what one needs to consider if if you're at the at the head of a country and 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 what to do about this the fact that we're looking at the like demographic collapse so uh the quote is um Moreland talks of the trilemma facing aging nations whereby you can have two of the three ethnic continuity a thriving economy or a comfortable lifestyle without the huge stress of mixing raising children and a modern economy israel has sacrificed the latter Japan has chosen to take the economic hit, while Britain's leaders have given up its ethnic continuity. But that, alas, was a short-term solution, since young immigrants don't magically avoid the fate of father time any more than the rest of us do. Um, so I think this is a, a really good encapsulation of, of the fact that this is not just coming, it's here. And there are some solutions, but they're all essentially... Um, kind of Ponzi schemes. They're not really addressing the problem. And to me, it feels like this is uh, the, the greatest problem that we're facing. Um, and it's it's not just because I'm looking at statistics and I'm looking at, you know, spreadsheets and, you know, the data says so. It's because I viscerally feel it around myself. I felt like for my generation and my cohort, my friends, my, my girlfriends that I grew up with, I almost made kind of a, a, a revolutionary act to decide to get married and have children um, because, you know, it was very much out of place. Even my friends here in Romania, you know, people say this is a backward country. Well, it's, it's keeping up with the West in many ways. Um, right. And it's obviously... Anyways, it's Romania is in, I mean, in Paul Morland's book, it's really, it's very bleak, uh, a lot of it, but there is a sort of, you know, the worst affected are places like Romania and Bulgaria. I mean, Ukraine is a super case now, which is low birth rates, but also not as wealthy as Western countries to so losing huge numbers of people to, uh, I mean, Britain has 1.1, 1.2 million Romanians we, uh, that we know of. I mean, I think the number, the number is probably, I mean, I, where I live in North London is actually, it's interesting. It's very. It's the, probably the most Romanian part because uh, North London was originally where the Greek Cypriots went. The Turkish Cypriots followed them, and you'll often find with one community will follow its near neighbours. And I think that is the sort of path dependency that afterwards Bulgarians and Romanians then followed. I don't know if the no. What happened? Uh, I'll tell you. I mean, are you ref referring to kind of maybe Golders Green area and and not well? Not well, the Greek area is Haringey, where, where I live, and they, they mm -hmm. go up the ladder and. There's the a bus route. There's a bus route from Luton Airport that starts, okay. goes through through the north. And the first bus stops there, people just thought they, they were in London. I've talked to people who live there and they said, okay, this oh, wait, is how the first okay. settlements. <laughs> so essentially they got off the bus. They were like, oh, London, London. Okay, we get off the bus and this is, you know, they went around, they looked for, for housing because, you know, people have signs for rent, whatever there yeah. and started to look. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that's apparently at least part of uh, why all around the, the bus route, you'll see little enclaves of Romanians. <laughs> That is very interesting. I mean, so when so when migrants from the Caribbean came in the 40s, they arrived at Southampton docks and they went to Victoria. Uh, and Victoria in central London, on the Victoria line, two lines, three stops down is Brixton. So Brixton became the hub of the West Caribbean community. Uh, a similar case, I think Leeds, there was one Sikh man in the 30s who went to who went to Leeds and then that basically became based. So that so I didn't, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that makes much more sense. I thought it was kind of because the Turks followed the Greeks, but so. 
anyway, one, whatever, 1.2, I think a half of all Romanian medics have left the country since um, 2008, since the, so I mean, at the time, I remember when it happened, so there was a much bigger uh, migration of Poles and of the other AEA things. And then when Romania and Bulgaria, I mean, I think that the A2 thing might have actually been a slight straw that broke the camel's back in terms of numbers here, because there was, you know, the the media reaction was, aha, we're not, we're, you know, politicians, these right-wing politicians say we're going to be flooded or something. I don't know if that word was used, but there was kind of, there was no sense that actually migration is, in the modern world with modern technology, modern communications, is actually much bigger than anyone can possibly imagine. There are huge, uh, you know, financial and other incentives for moving, and that can have huge effects both on the country where people are leaving from and the country where they're arriving. Um, so in the case of Romania, which, you know, has had below replacement fertility, that's going to have a huge But I mean, I wonder if overall, I mean, obviously, like, communism is terrible. There's no doubt, you know, communism obviously much worse than whatever followed, but the long-term impact of the east of the eastern central Europe, the, the demography of people leaving at that rate is just it's astonishing. Unless yeah. Romania becomes significantly wealthier and there's a move back. I mean, I think maybe that will happen in Poland because Poland's becoming a lot. Yeah, I think there's, I think R- Romania kind of got into into the European Union at maybe, maybe, you know, looking backward and, and from the future backwards, it's going to be kind of an auspicious moment because, you know, it, it will empty the country and the country's still emptying as we speak. Um, but the Westerns is... You know, there's there's things happening in the West, and I know yeah. a lot of people are coming back from uh, from places like the UK, from Italy, and, and building here. You know, there's still kind of a bit of um, optimistic. I'd like to believe the kind of optimistic. You know, I mean, I know I, I'm not sort of anti neoliberal in the sense that I generally think you know globalization is overall good force, and um, if there are if there are, you know, if it's not taken to extremes like anything, it can be, you know, great benefit. And, you know, it's good that people get wealthy. So I suppose there is the optimistic line that as these countries become wealthier, uh, a lot of people will want to move back and it wouldn't have such an extreme effect. But we haven't really seen evidence of that. I mean, at current rates, apparently, Britain is going to fall behind Poland in about 12 years at our current GDP projection. Oh, that's GDP per capita. And that's from a huge, you know, disadvantage after communism. So presumably at that point, I mean, Britain is not such an it's not such an attractive destination. But I mean, the main problem we've all got is just that there are so many old people compared to young people. I mean, it really became noticeable at COVID. I mean, I don't know if you were like waiting for the vaccines because I was, you know, the forty somethings, right now it's the seventy something. They start with the eighty somethings and the seventy somethings. We were waiting like weeks and months for them to get through all the old people. Uh, and they're like, wow, it really reminds me of this country. And then after that, like they just shot through the 20s, the 30s and 20s. Like there aren't that. And if there are places in England, I mean, we went to, during lockdown, went to Dorset quite a bit in sort of southwest of England, very picturesque kind of county. Um, you expect to see sort of like talking woodland creatures wearing suits and stuff, that kind of. Everyone is so unbelievably old. I mean, I'm in like in the youngest you know, second percentile of age when I, if I go anywhere. It's just, it's really, really noticeable. I, I think it's only become, this kind of demographic shift has only really become noticeable in the last three or four years where everyone's just getting used to... Um, I mean, I'm not sort of naturally, I'm not sort of the advice-giving type. I like to write about what I think is is happening in the world, but I don't, I don't really want to give prescriptive um, 
themes. But clearly, that that is obviously an issue that someone needs to seriously think about. Yeah, I think there's a comment to to one of your articles on kind of the demographic collapse, and it was from a, a woman, and she said she um, I have ten children. I don't know oh, yeah. whether yeah whether I have any grandchildren. My oldest daughter is engaged at thirty one, and the rest have pets and their siblings for company. Um, I mean, sure, she's bound to have some, right? If you have ten kids, like that's. I mean, that's I, I hope you'd the be thing very is, and end up with nothing. I, it's it it is kind of weird. Maybe it's just, just a quirk of my friend group, but. There's just so few children being had. And even the people who are trying to have them are having a lot of trouble because they're starting very late. And, yeah. you know, even even with the best of intentions, like just, you know, you can't engineer biology to that point. It's it's I don't know. It's really it's really scary. Um yeah, I and it is it is sort of at least in my in my assessment, it's kind of this spiritual malaise you know because it's like you know it's uh housing market plays a plays a you know a role as well and but you know we're definitely much richer than our ancestors i mean my my grandparents lived in just like an incomparable squalor uh and you know the red army was you know (laughs) mowing down their neighbors and things like that and still there were like 10 of them so it's just it's it's it, it is uncomfortable and it is uh, it is a complete overhaul of your life if you're just saying of a, a just a modern individual trying to get by and you know make enough money yeah. and buy the things that need to be bought and um, climb up, up the status ladder. But um, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's 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 shocking to me that that really this is kind of the situation we're in, and you you kind of have to you know because people tell me like oh you shouldn't be having children for ideological reasons, but at, at this point you know what exactly should the reason be like? Because because the idea that you're just going to rely on basic instincts doesn't seem to be working because we have we've overridden all our basic instincts with all sorts of layers of uh, of yeah. inter intermediation through tech or or medication or something. Do people so you mean like by ideological reasons you shouldn't have? kids just because it's sort of further in a uh, multiply, spread forth and multiply sort of because having large families is a good thing. I mean, is that? Yeah, it's like, you know, you should kind of just just do it. But I feel like we're kind of at a point where it's it's a bit it's a bit hard to just do it. Like, for example, if I if I just went with the flow of what was laid in front of me and I didn't necessarily um, you know, think about this and, you know, you know, decide that this is a good thing for me and, you know, just yeah. kind of almost philosophically decide to have children. Well, you never you never, it's never the right time. I mean, that is the thing, isn't it? Some people, it's often say it's not the right time. It's never the right time. I mean, it's it's huge inconvenience. I have to say, they do get a lot more expensive, shockingly expensive after like seven or eight. Like when you have kids, because <laughs> you, I don't know, we ended up with loads of like hand-me-downs. I mean, I must have bought like four items of clothing for my kids. And, you know, baby food's rare and they end up eating leftovers. But then all of a sudden, it's partly the expectations of, uh, of social groups. I think the only way you can have large families and it's be economical is to hang out with other sort of weird bohemian Catholic types who have, who like live in genteel poverty, which does exist. But in most cases, once I found there's sort of, there's like an arms race, you know, things like even at like children's parties, everything becomes more and more expensive because of a sort of competition to a status composition. And that's, I mean, apparently that is, um, that is considered probably one of the most likely reasons why. So, you know, so France basically went through demographic transition about 100 years before everyone else. And it started with the aristocracy who 
started in very small families, like as far back as the 17th century. And the main reason considered is that um, the cost of society, like the cost of being going to parties and being seen as a member of aristocratic life made uh, having children who are very expensive as well, just, you know, too expensive. So people ended up having smaller and smaller families amongst the aristocracy. And that spread amongst the rest of France, which had a huge... And I think that is another kind of factor in urban, you know, in urban societies, having children is is very expensive. I mean, I agree that there is a spiritual thing. There is a kind of one. You need to have a sort of desire. Um, I don't know. I mean, say, uh, I suppose it is kind of egotistical, but it's a kind of belief in posterity as well, isn't it? So, I think if you think about your ancestors, I always think that's probably quite a good way of thinking about it your ancestors all struggled to for you to be here and they all you know i mean if you're talking about recent eastern european history they struggled a lot but if you go a few generations back they all struggled in incredible difficult circumstances just so we could sort of be there so i think there is a feeling that you want to pass on continue the chain because there is kind of meaning in life sorry this is getting a bit too like wacky and spiritual isn't it but that that's <laughs> if i have any kind of profound thoughts about it deep down that's what, what i think that you know, I would like them. I, I also, I think there's an example like uh, a couple of years ago, I was on holiday with my wife's family, and they were her and her siblings and her dads and mum were all talking about their granny who died like 15 years ago. And they spent the whole evening, I didn't know her, so the conversation wasn't particularly interesting to me. She died like 15 years ago, and they spent the whole evening laughing and talking about her. And it's just such a nice idea that. You know, years after you're gone, people will talk about you like that. I guess that's a very like older, you know, almost like a Viking way of looking at it. Like you sort of achieve a mortality if you, if people still talk about you. But I think that's just such a lovely thought because when it comes down to it, everything else is kind of forgotten about, isn't it? Really, like most people, unless you, I don't know, win a Nobel Prize or something, most people's careers or anything else is is kind of slightly less important than yeah. the sort of relationship they have their family. Exactly. And it's very hard to know how you'll feel about your children before you have them, because I think like even a lot of people would describe motherhood and things like that. Uh, even even more liberal types who say, oh, you know, there's this, it's really hard and there's a lot of problems and stuff like that. But at the end, the conclusion is typically, oh, I wouldn't have it any other way, except for you know some some more psychopathic people who write about this. Which... Yeah, you don't. I mean, no one, I suppose all, very few people regret it, don't they? That's the thing. But I suppose that sort of, I don't know. It's philosophically that's hard to say because once something happens, it happens. I don't know. Um, yeah, I didn't think people would regret that. But I mean, isn't I don't think it's something that can be, I don't know, resolved by by laws or even tax benefits. Uh, no, it doesn't, it doesn't seem so. There's it's also very I don't know. It's a sensitive issue. Issue and I, without this is probably as progressive as I will as I will ever get. Is that I understand it's. As a man, I, I feel like there are certain things I don't really, uh, I should be very careful about talking about because it's like fundamental, like the deepest thing, um, the woman's sort of fertility and, you know, uh, reproduction. And, and it's, this debate does, you know, can provoke huge amounts of anger or um, upset when people talk about it in that way. Yeah, you're you're being very British about this. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like I, I didn't have to go through 
I mean, you know, I was there, but I didn't have to go through Charles' <laughs> for example. And, and and I would say I think it's in a lot of cases. A lot of people, a lot of, a lot of women are very feel a lot of regret if they don't have children. It's kind of very sensitive, kind of sad subject, I think. Uh, and that's not always because they left it late or they or they didn't want to. Sometimes they just can't, or you know, I don't know. Life gets in the way, whatever. Of course. I mean, uh, I mean, from I don't know. From what I can tell, the only like successful example of a country which has reversed this problem uh, by just kind of cultural change is Georgia. So I, I mean, I, and they got the Archbishop. I mean, the Metropolitan, the head of the church, baptizes every child. So they make every parent feel that you know you're meeting a celebrity here. You're very special. Everything's about you for the day. Um, you know, you're wonderful. So that, and they managed to get it down from like one, up from 1. 1.4 or something to 2.1. I mean, that's, I mean, like Hungary and Czechia have done quite well, but they're not at that level. And I wonder, I think Britain is very, very unreligious. So I don't think that would really have the same fact. You need to like do something like more British. You need to get them, they get to go out to stand in front of the middle of Old Trafford or something, each parent, I don't know. You make them like, you know, the celebrity for the day. Yeah. Favorite Love Island contestant baptized yeah, as a baby. Love Island. Right. Yeah, it's it, it is it is a hard thing to kind of um reverse engineer because it's in a way, you know, with with all the kind of layers of intermediary things and and you know, press social pressures, technological pressures. Um, I think a, a lot of children also just happened. I mean, just without the yeah. pill and things like that. I think, you know, I think now it's very much a decision and you kind of have to weigh all the costs and benefits and, and God, are there many costs, both social and, and, and financial. And back in the day, not only would children happen, but they would be an economic plus. I mean, you would, wouldn't be able to have a household without them. So, yeah, I mean, there's probably has to be some sort of, um, ideological lever that we can pull uh because it seems that i don't know if with without total economic collapse i don't see where we you know how we return to kind of um the the same state um you know forgetting about our technology and things like that and kind of would have to be i do find it strange and it makes me feel very much i am not an organized elite member of the sort of ruling class because i'm just too disorganized and chaotic but People who sort of say, oh, you know, we're going to plan a child in like, you know, spring 2024. So we're going to, and it's also like just when all the financial things are moving in place. And or even a lot of people who, who plan their children. So in England, the, the child's born between September and November because you have a slight educational advantage. That kind of, that level of um, seriousness about it, I, I find very hard to say because I just think we're, we're mostly just a long line of accidents, right? You know, so. You've got to be slightly fatalistic after a while. It's like, you know, it's the will of God, whatever. It happens. Yeah. That's the sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, at, at least that, <laughs> at least a, a little bit of, uh, I don't know. I think that just kind of involves a, a certain rigor. And also it's very hard to actually, you know, these things don't really happen exactly when you, when you plan them. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, it's it's there's a, a whole a whole thing. Um, another another thing that you have written on, and I think is, is quite interesting. And I mean, it's interesting. It's it's absolutely terrible. It's a it's a kind of the grooming gang scandals. Yeah. Um, which, uh, I used to live in the UK when kind of the stories broke, and uh, just yeah, it was, I was it was very jarring to to think that this could happen, uh, and that it was still happening. And that's as, as far as I can understand, it's probably still happening. There's not really any. Yeah, as far as I, yeah, it's definitely. I mean, yeah, it's definitely still happening. 
yeah, it's when I mean when I first heard about it, I mean it was actually first really spoken about. People spoke about it, but it merged amongst um it was spoken about by members of the BNP, you know, who are sort of pretty extreme right-wing, I mean they are pretty neo-Nazi. Um and that um, in the latest report, it involves so I don't know how many you know your listeners know the UK. The Oldham was Oldham's in Lancashire, it's um it's an old cotton town. And it really is quite a sort of classic. It was once basically the center of the, the cotton world. Uh, and then obviously that went and it's sort of four and a half times and um, has quite a large, large-ish Pakistani minority. And this latest report, uh, you know, they mentioned the far right 15 times. This is people, so every time they say, well, so we knew this girl was being gang raped by this gang. Uh, we knew, and she was basically just being, you know, pushed around and like grossly mistreated and um but you know we can't sort of we can't make this big issue because it'll it will embolden the far right or help the far right and the far right hear about this with it and after all i think well like is your job to basically <laughs> to stop children getting raped or is it to you know look after the national discourse so it doesn't get issue like after a while i think if you, are you if you, what 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 will you do to stop the far right i mean like you'll go to almost any length um to avoid this issue and it, and i mean we don't know the full numbers but i mean it's obviously in total we're talking at least probably five thousand girls um most of them come from like very very poor backgrounds often in care um uh, not um they don't have sort of family members to look after them and 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 you know the strangest thing is you know a lot of social workers knew that they were you know, they had these boyfriends going out. These girls are like 13 or 14. Their boyfriends are in their 20s. That's not boyfriend. That's, that's a, a pedophile. And it was allowed. And some of them were even, in some towns, were even given contraception because in Britain, we had a ruling 30 years ago that children are allowed to be given contraception without the consent of any parents or adults, um, which was a very, very <laughs> foolish, um, foolish mistake, as it turned out. And this has been going on. And, and it's just, it's just very strange that I mean, my, my, I read about it a couple of weeks ago. It's like, when we think of the Victorian era, we don't really, we don't immediately think of their huge engineering, you know, achievements or their huge strides or their incredible um, transformation society. We tend to like think of things like the workhouse and Oliver Twist and those kind of really, really, really squalid, horrific um, stories of poverty because they've kind of been imprinted in the memory through Charles Dickens's work. Um and, and I just wonder if, you know, in a few hundred years' time when people were writing about our age, the second Elizabethan age, especially the late second Elizabethan age, you know, which starts with really Blair, well, is this what they're going to remember? Because, I mean, this is, there is, like, literally nothing in our history which is like this. There's nothing in the Victorian era which is as bad as this, the, like, the kind of almost institutional gang rape of girls in their teens. It's just, there, you know, there was, like, a child prostitution in London in the ninth century as there was in almost any city. And they clamped down on it. You know, the, the press had a, it was one of the great sort of tabloid journalistic um, campaigns. And they that's what caused the, the age of consent to be raised 16 to stop this happening. Um, I mean, but this is just, I mean, un, unbelievable, really. And, and almost, you know, very little has been done to stop it. I mean, interesting. I mean, even one of the, the leaders of, of the, uh, gangs, I think it was an Oldham, might be in Rochdale, which is another town nearby. 
um, has been able to avoid deportation. I mean, lots of them have been able to avoid deportation. Like, so most of the gang, they're either Pakistani-born or second-generation Pakistanis. Um, and if, uh, you know, they, a lot of it has been sort of basically underplayed or, or just sort of put to one side. It's just kind of an inconvenient issue. And I generally think it's like the most, it's just the most mind-blowingly hor- horrible thing that's happened in Britain in the last 30 years. It's just, it's, there's very little that can be said about it. Yeah, I think that's because your value system doesn't see emboldening the far right as the the, the biggest evil. I feel like, no, you know... You know, I, I think about this, well, it's, you, know, you know, with Britain, like Britain is a country, like Britain, like by any standards is very, like very unracist. Um which is a good quality. It's a, you know, that kind of social tolerance is a good quality in any country. You look at, you know, it comes up again with the, the list of Tory candidates, which, you know, I think basically half of them are from one white backgrounds. But, you know, public tolerance is, is a very like, soft virtue. It's not a hugely, it's not very difficult virtue, for example. I mean, I'm writing something now comparing to, you know, it's like personal tolerance is much harder. Like, you know, living with someone is much harder than, accepting members of different ethnic groups in your street or neighborhood, because that's just a very far away um, sort of, you know, a weak virtue. But it's a virtue nonetheless. It's good to live in an unraised society. But also any virtue taken to extremes becomes a vice. I mean, it, yes, we have very, un, you know, unraised society, but, you know, we jail people for making racist jokes in private WhatsApp groups. I mean, we're obsessed by the subject. And, you know, worst of all, we allow thousands of girls to be raped because people are scared of racism. I mean. I I happen to believe I think there is probably definitely a link between um what happened in all these towns like Rotherham was the worst case. Um and in the late 90s there was a big kind of investigation stoked show trial into racism in the police in London. There was a McPherson report that came out of inquiry. It was after it was a horrible murder of a young black teenager in London in the early 90s called Stephen Lawrence, very famous in the UK. The, the police failed to prosecute the, the suspects. Um, later, it was a campaign with the Daily Mail, actually, which got them done. And there was this huge kind of uh, inquiry. Them, um, and it basically said the, the police are institutionally racist. I mean, no doubt there is racism in the police. And it made you know, public officials terrified of, of anything which would get them in trouble on this issue. And I, I do believe, I'm pretty sure that that must have influenced people as they were um, you know, hearing rumours about what was going on in the north of England. I mean, you should, I mean, amazing things like, you know, racism is, you know, you might call it a sin or it's a, it's a vice or it's, a, at any rate, a sort of negative trait. But you have to put everything into context. You have to balance all the, all the virtues. And we, we take it to, you know, this extreme, extreme level. Yeah, I think it's, it's it's not necessarily because you can see this in in the U.S. as well, kind of the with the with the difference course, between yeah. the with the conservatives and 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 the liberals. I mean, you know, both of them have autonomy as the as a core value, but the the rest of the 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 virtues are maybe you know ranked differently. It's not that right. I, I guess conservatives are interest are, are very racist. They're just not tr- keen to put racism on top, you know, ten levels above every other yeah, um, vice. Yeah, so it's. I think it's 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 and and also I think that's that's why they lose because when you put one virtue above 
you know, on the pedestal above every other virtue, you kind of have a moral fervor that just doesn't compare, um, you know, in, in the opposite party, because the opposite party essentially accepts your premises, you know, they say, oh, you know, racism is a vice, you know, and then they just kind of bludgeon themselves to death with the, with the problem, right. with this kind of just accepting the same framing, but not bringing the same, you know, power and, and moral righteousness to... to right, so they're just offering a weaker product, Diet Coke, whatever. Exactly. Oh, you know, um, we have... Two, you know, 2005 Coke, you know, wasn't it nicer in 2005? No, we want like per, the permanent revolution looks much better than 2005 brand Coke. Yeah, I think that is a problem with conservative. Say, oh, why couldn't we have just stopped it this like, like six years ago? Well, no, because like, why couldn't we have stopped the revolution in 1792? I mean, it was ever because it's inevitably going to get worse. Whereabouts in the UK did it, by the way, of interest? I lived in, in London, yeah. I lived in East London. I lived in Hackney. I lived in Walthamstow for a while. Harringay, just like different different bits. Walthamstow's become very fancy, hasn't it? Apparently. <laughs> it wasn't that fancy when I was there. <laughs> and I, I the, the Victorian part is quite fancy, isn't it? Yeah, the the there is a, a little bit, and I used to kind of walk there because I I lived literally in the apartment blocks next to Walthamstow Central Station next right. to the bus stop and it was uh yeah it was a bit more rowdy at night I had one guy there who was yelling Allahu Akbar for about a week all night long just like all it's night it's like my lovely urban <laughs> setting just <laughs> listening to my neighbor a mentally ill man with an obsession with Islam. <laughs> um, exactly. yeah that, I mean that, that's just that's just the, the sound of London isn't it I mean <laughs> East London was I mean remember there was about five years ago they they so one of my, my crazy ideas is that I, I'm a bit of a supermarket. That, I think they're called the Tesco Truthers, the people. So some people believe there are like millions more people in Britain than the actual officials less on. And like the conspiracy, the true conspiracy theorists think it's like 20 million more. I think it's probably like 3 million more. But about five or six years ago, it turned out there were these houses in, uh, I think there was something like Redbridge or Ilford or something, where there were Romanian workers. There were sort of 25 guys living in a three-bedroom house. And it turned out to be you know, okay, I mean, they were young guys, that's fine, they'll probably move on and blah, 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 but it turned out this is happening, like, quite a, a lot. Um, I'm not saying like Romanians, by the way, I mean, like, it's nothing, it's not... Yeah, no, I think I've been to one of those houses <laughs> and friends yeah. who lived in... I mean, they're just trying, you know, London is very expensive, and they're just trying to make a living, there's nothing wrong there. But they're also, it turns out, in the West, there were, like, near Heathrow Airport, this whole lot of line of, like, sheds, where people were living in sheds, um, and... Although I'm actually literally in a shed right now, but I don't, I don't live. <laughs> um, and, and I thought that's you know that's kind of a bit squalid and dystopian. After I mean that gets that's a bit depressing. Like people shouldn't uh, people shouldn't have to live like that. I mean it should be I don't know it should be and that's kind of the, the scene I see in London becoming this kind of great if you're kind of wealthy and just hellish if you're poor, and that's the kind of I don't know. That's a society, like the society I don't really want to live in. I don't really think we 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 need to accept. We don't, you know, people shouldn't have to live in those kind of conditions. It could be, it could be like resolvable. Um yeah. But there we go. But I mean, mm. you know. Yeah. I think, you know, 
a lot of people who live in those houses essentially see going to the UK as kind of like a temporary deal where they, yeah, um, you know, okay. just go there and, I know, do Uber or, you know, maybe engage in some, you know, petty criminality or less, less so, uh, and then, you know, make their money and then go home and yeah, build a house there. Just, you know, kind of use the, the, the fact that their, their labor is worth more. Um, sure. and, I, mean, I mean, if that, if that works for them, I mean, I, I did feel that, you know, Brexit was basically a reaction to that kind of development, you know, this kind of, you know, we also, there's also a thing, the sort of latifundia style, you know, strawberry picking things. I mean, even during the pandemic, you know, they were camp lobbying, these groups and lobbies, and we've got to fly in uh, 20,000 fruit pickers from Romania to say, listen, like, if you can't pay people a decent wage, mechanize, or, or do something else with that land, like, it's not worth this situation. I mean, it doesn't even make sense for Britain to particularly grow its own strawberries. But this whole situation, and, and the weirdest thing is that this kind of system where you're importing stoop labor. And if you go through the, this one, you know, go through all the reports and then BBC's do what the worst for this, there'd be no mention of wages. You, you know, you search through it, so wages, where is the mention of wages? Like you're not getting local people to work here because you're not paying enough. It's just, it's like a grossly weird and unfair system. You're importing people from 2,000 miles away to work in these terrible conditions. Now I know that sounds, you know, I've written about it before. I mean, that sounds patronizing because like my ancestors um, like migrated from different parts of the British Isles from the West of Ireland and North of England looking for a better income and, and you know, life improved. So, I mean, you know, there is the other side of that. If you can work in those squalid conditions, maybe in five years time, you're going to be earning, you're going to be earning, you know, decent money or you'd have made enough money to, to actually invest in home. I'm just yeah. not convinced that that actually happens that much. I don't know. Yeah, I think it happens for some people. Um, it it also kind of um, destroys. There's a certain kind of commons aspect, even to places that you you go to. Like for example, if you go, if you're a Romanian, you know, who wants to work in London, you can go to London and not have to interact with an with an English speaking person at all. You can just go to Romaniaville and you know work in a Romanian shop and talk to Romanian people, do Romanian business, kind of in the in the soup of London, but not really in London. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of people are also kind of, um, they're skeptical about the the UK. They feel like, you know, the, the UK is racist. Essentially, that's kind of also what the media says. You know, the, the British are racist. We don't interact with them because they're racist. You know, they, they don't well, like us here. Romanian. Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, especially I'm like, you're white. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> so, But no, just like this, this whole, uh, you know, concept of kind of... Um, ethnic animus that uh, they, they don't want us here. And that's why I'm also justified in essentially just, you know, making a quick buck and then, you know, just, yeah, leaving this I, country. I don't think there is that. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm probably the wrong social class to judge. I do think, and this is probably quite controversial, a lot of the media, like, uh, discourse, you can see a lot of tabloid articles about Romanians in the past hasn't really been about Romanians, if without. At this point, is a man with this umbrella hooking me away to say stop talking. There is some sort of like confusion about what they mean by Romanians, but I, I don't think, I mean, I don't know if the average person would distinguish a Romanian from someone else in Central or Eastern Europe. I don't know. Um, I think there was a certain thing was migration from Central Europe was very large in that from 2004, much more than people anticipated. You know, our government said there'd be between five and thousand. 13,000 a year. Now, it was like over a million in three or four years. I mean, part of me just thinks, how can the people run run the system be so incompetent and so, like, un- like you could have asked 
I mean, I guess the internet nons didn't exist it, in those days. It but makes sense. The nons, and they they would get much much more accurate. Yeah. But it makes sense if you if you you know look at the pedestal and look at what's on the pedestal and it says emboldening the far right is what you want to avoid. Yeah. Uh, so obviously they're going to lie to you about things that would embolden the far right. You know all their all their uh, you know I ideas. I hope they're not just incompetent and they have no idea how migration patterns work. It's bad either way, to be honest. No, no, exactly. There's two choices. But I mean, I, I I think that would have been that would have been fine if it was just you know slightly managed more. I mean, as they did in most countries, it was sort of basically. There were kind of like pause, there were breaks, and there were slight restrictions. Uh, I think in Britain they were just surprised by the, by the size of change. Uh, I didn't. I mean, I haven't picked up much hostility towards Eastern Europeans generally. Um, yeah, maybe a I, bit I don't more think there Romanian is. Poles, but even not that much there. I don't think there is. I mean, to be honest, and maybe it's also, like I said, it's it's also kind of a class thing as well. Because I I went, to, I worked in tech, and you know, in, in those circles, you're kind of a little bit of. Uh, you're special if you're from beyond the aisles. Uh, no, maybe also as a woman in tech, whatever that means. You know, there's another layer of intersectional specialty added to my 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 stack or something like that. But I was always treated with kind of almost deference by other people, especially after Brexit. They were all kind of like, you know, coming yeah. to me cap in hand saying, I'm sorry, I didn't want this to happen. You know, it's yeah. not my fault. I voted I voted correctly. So, yeah. I think you're class and, and educated that you always have a slightly different way. I mean, that sounds like my mum's experience of coming to London in the 60s, where she was, uh, you know, like a, from a middle class South Dublin. She And she spoke in a quite slightly more refined way. And her experience, she didn't like, when people talk about, oh, the experience of like poor Irish migrants in London being told, you know, no Irish, no blacks, no dogs, like that's just a world away from hers. She never, just never experienced those worlds. And, you know, even you know, working class Londoners would be slightly deferential to her because she's middle class and that kind of outranks anything. So, um, yeah, that does sound like, you, yeah, your background is going to be, it's going to affect how, how you see things. Yeah. And I can see like, for example, if you interact with kind of working class, uh, British people and you don't speak the language and you also kind of, I don't know, are squatting in a tracksuit next to your BMW oh, yeah. and stuff like that and act in very stereotypical ways. Maybe people will be like, hmm, this guy's not from here and you might have a, whatever, uh, an interaction that's not favorable, but I just, I just don't know. If are the Romanians also into squatting? I, I, I mean, I know it's the love it. <laughs> right, so, you know, yeah. the Poles love to squat and obviously the Russians love to squat, but... <laughs> We squat too, yeah, and and we love tracksuits, a different kinds, so, uh, yeah, stripy ones. Okay. And Red Bull, <laughs> drinking Red Bull. That's the other thing. That's the other. Um, Red Bull, yeah, I think people love Monster here for some reason. Monster, I don't yeah, know. Of course, yeah, that's more decent. Yeah. Monster yeah. is good. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I think I feel like the Russians are you know, kind of have taken this to an extreme. Like whenever you see like someone who's extremely like meme type. Uh, of you know the gopnik the 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 squatter the the yeah. the, the guy the, he's probably russian but you know right, kind of yeah. the the intermediary types where you see kind of you know uh semi that's probably from kind of closer to the west you know even right. some hungarians you know closer to to romania do that as well so yeah there's uh, all sorts of um, variations on the same theme Someone needs to do a squats a squatting map of europe just the, the levels just to <laughs> exactly to know to the kind of uh, squatting physiognomy and the types of tracksuits that uh, correspond to each region. I think the tracksuit thing might be fascinating. It would be like sort of like Clan Tartan, wouldn't it, right? I mean... Exactly, exactly. I mean, the, the tracksuit thing was just that, you know, it was the the only kind of branded stuff 
which was obviously branded that you would kind of get after communism or even before some right. people would get it even before. But yeah, it's uh, and I think it's also because a lot of kind of 70s culture uh, was imprinted on kind of the um, the collective consciousness of, of Romania because we got everything was kind of retarded in the medical sense that you know we were like five ten twenty years behind and you know kind of the 70s image of the guy with a you know fluffy hair and in an adidas okay. full full body tracksuit kind of was was a high status thing you know that what americans used to wear and well, yeah. were mullets big like they were in east germany was that i don't think i remember when i see footage of 1989 i don't seem to i don't visualize lots of mullets like i do in germany where they're all no. Climbing up the wall with you know massive effect. Not that much. I think there was kind of a, an, a 90s little like brief mullet phase, but no, I think right. we've we've <laughs> passed that very very quickly. That's just as well. It's just as well. <laughs> well, um, on on that cheery note, uh, and on that you know ta- taxonomy of the Eastern types, uh, I want to ask you the question of the show, which is: uh, Do you have a subversive thinker that you think is underrated that people should you know find out about, read more of, or, or generally check out? A subversive thinker. Um, I've actually really I don't actually know who he is, but I've come to read this SN SN. NS Lyons Substack. Have you heard of him? No, no, no. Uh, very good. I don't know. I mean, he really he seems kind of normal to me. So it's hard to tell. Like, is someone like too edgy to to mention? But I, I don't know. But um, there's no one too edgy to mention on this show. <laughs> Feel free. I, I I don't know him, but I'll I'll check him out if that's he, you know that's yeah, a great forewarning. That's called the upheavals. Very interesting. He he basically uh, he's kind of the most celebrated essay. He looks at you know what what causes the current like progressive overreach, um, and is this kind of just liberalism taken to its um, normal sort of extent as sort of both liberals have it, or is this a kind of um, is this an anti-liberal movement? Uh, and, he, and he just you know he he dissects the 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 intellectual division. I mean, obviously he's he's probably he's on the pro post-liberal side in that thing, but he argues very well. His latest thing is. Um, the piece on Francis Fukuyama on his liberalism and his discontent. So, uh, you know, it's a, um, it's a, it's you know, it's an interesting analysis. So I'd recommend. I don't actually know who he is. I don't. I, I never. I, I think it's a. It's not even his real name. So I don't know if you can even have him on unless you want to have it a sort of, you know, SAS style distorted voice message. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've had I've had quite a few on with the, with yeah. distorted voices and all that. So, yeah, I think that's that's excellent. I mean, that sounds like uh, definitely up uh, up my alley and the show's alley. And whoever whoever listens to this is going to be interested in that. That's great. I I haven't heard of him, but we'll we'll put it in the show notes. Check him out. Uh, perfect. Uh, well, well, maybe it's a woman. Maybe it's maybe it's a woman pretending to be a man. I don't know. Yeah, could be. Could be. I'm happy that you hedged that <laughs> just to make sure. Make yeah, it? could yeah. even be a non-binary person. Yeah, no, we don't know. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Ed. This was lovely, uh, and it's been a long time coming. I've been reading your work for for a while. Um, wonderful writer, um, and please do check out all of uh, all of Ed's work, his books, um, "Small Men on the Wrong Side of History," and the diversity illusion, and of course the Substack, uh, The Wrong Side of History. Thanks, Alex. Thank you so much. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, 
I maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you 